welcome to the Invino Fabulum podcast. In wine, there is a story. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. And we're your co-hosts for the Invino Fabulum. We think there's a number of tales to be shared about women and wine, and this is a space and a podcast to offer that narrative and chat about both. And today we welcome France Burrell to talk about her journey to becoming a digital nomad and her experiences as a female entrepreneur. She's currently the owner of Architectus, which she may have to correct for me, and is a DITA XML documentation architect, uh, and she's going to tell us a little bit more about what that means, who helps organizations analyze their content and processes, select tools, and learn about DITA and or XML. And she has a unique background with a BA in communication from University of Ottawa and a BS in computer science from University de Sherbrooke. And over the years, she has worn many hats from writer to translator to programmer analyst and product manager. So we're really uh, looking forward to hearing a little bit about your journey. And since you're currently in Portugal, to hear a little bit more about that. So to start off, uh, you know, beyond the kind of uh, perfunctory introduction that I just gave, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey to where you are today? Oh, my journey would take way too much time. <laughs> well, the the I think part of the journey that would be interesting um, to tell um, when we talk about women in tech. Um, when I was in um, primary school, my brother got a computer from his uncle, and uh, he never played with it. So I connected it to the TV, and I started programming with the little books that we had. And when I was discussing with other women, it turned out that at least in our generation, so I'm in my mid-40s, uh, most of the computers in the house were into the little boys' rooms hmm. and not in the women's room which uh, in turns means girl, we're not playing with computers. And I only got the chance to play with a computer as a young kid because my brother was not interested in it. So I think that's, that's one thing to uh, kind of remember sometimes is if you have a computer in the house, put it somewhere where every kid can play with it. That's interesting. You're right, because you think about the ads from whether it was technology or robotic or whatever. Um, you think about the ads targeted were on a weird gender normative or unnormative kind of slant. And and what was some of the first things you did with that uh, piece of technology once you got to take it over? Well, it didn't do anything except code. <laughs> so Perfect. You, you plug it onto the TV. So it meant we had one TV. So it meant nobody wanted to watch TV at that time. And then and then you could code. And I, I was coding out from a book. So it was like basic where every line had the number. And then you'd say, go back to number 10 and then go back to. So basically, I was programming little man built with zeros and ones that like the zero and one would make up the hands and the body and they would just move their hands. And I thought that was so cool and I had nothing to record it. So I would program the same thing over and over, but you know, that's how kids are. You just do the same thing and you, you still think it's cool. Cool. Yeah. So, so thinking back to that, you know, sometimes we think even if the computer was sitting in the room, there's something that motivated you to want to play around with it and take that book out and on your own teach you how to code. You know, thinking back to some of the experiences you had in your childhood, is there anything that kind of, you know, 
rises to, to the top that you think kind of helped helped you to engage with the computer? Seriously, I have no idea. I just thought it was really fun to see. Like, because when you do something and you see the result, it's rewarding on its own. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's what I liked is like, I would do something and then it came up on the screen and I could see the result. And I always played with computers later, like in school, you know, you write something for a teacher and they give you a mark. But when you do something on the computer, you actually see that it works. Like for me, it was the practical nature of it, I think. Like the feedback was coming back as this works or this doesn't work. And I didn't need to wait for somebody to say, well, I don't like this minus five, you know? Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's your feedback and gratification. Shocking how that might work for us to learn. No, I, I think yeah. what you're saying is really tinkering and playing around with it and kind of your exploration. Um, it was something you're doing for you and not something else or a grade or anything like that. Yeah, there was no other motivation except the fact that I thought it was fun to do. Hmm. So m- moving along on your journey, you eventually went on to get your uh, bachelor's of science in computers in computer science. And I know, you know, the other stories we hear a lot of are, you know, a lot of women are really interested in math and science in middle school or high school uh, and even major, you know, start out majoring in that in college. But then, you know, we see the uh, th- that they don't persist to graduation. Uh, you know, can you think of any experiences that, you know, might have helped you continue to complete your degree or any? No, I can any- tell you all the experiences that <laughs> convinced me not to pursue my degree, but I ended up doing it anyway. No, seriously, yeah. the first thing uh, when I was in high school, I thought computers were the thing and I wanted to do that. And I said to the uh, career teacher, I want to do computers. And he said, no, that's a fade. There's, it's not a career. You can't build your future on that. Like it's, it's going to pass and nobody's ever going to use computers anymore. And then I saw the career counselor and he's like, uh, you know, no guy's going to want to work with you and you're going to be the only girl, like pick something else. So I ended up going into what we call human sciences. And, um, and then I wanted to do computers and um, for university, but because of that, I thought, yeah, that's not a good career choice. But I saw that in Ottawa, the communication program, like the pamphlet that they had was somebody uh, creating videos, you know, doing the uh, editing of videos. And that person was sitting in front of five or six screens. And I was like, okay, I want to do that. And I went there because I saw that communication networking <laughs> with computers. <laughs> and then I completed that degree and I had a really good teacher who was always talking about multimedia and the convergence of media and, and computers. And then I tried to work in that and people thought I was crazy that I went to school and I finished my degree. Anyway, when I came out of communication, it was a recession in Canada. There were no jobs. So it's not like I could do anything with that degree. So I went back to school and then I came out and then it was year 2000 and the bubble of technology burst and there was no job. (laughs) So it took me until I was 30 until I actually got real good work. Um, So it was a long journey. (laughs) I'm glad you didn't listen to your guidance counselor who said it may just be a thought or you can't get a career with computers. 
Which right, we did know then. But then, in the end, I can get a career anyways. So. <laughs> <laughs> a career, I it's building. It's building. Yeah, but when I came out, even with communication and computer science, I remember going to interviews and people said, oh, why did you go into computer science? Because you couldn't work with your degree in communication. And at some point, I stopped putting it into my resume. I removed it. And then I went to interviews because and people would ask me this question and I, I would just answer like, haven't you heard of multimedia? Like it's computer and communications. And people always looked at me like I was weird. And then I found the job that said we need either the bachelor in communication or in computer science. Um, they were looking for a technical writer. Mm. And that's how I finally entered the field was, oh, I can do that. I have both degrees. <laughs> and then I went to the interview and they said, that's such a good profile. I'm like, finally. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have those programs combined because you're right. What you did is not like novel now, but it was, it was back then. Cause it was mm. kind of like this equals this equals this career. And it's not like that. No, it's not. And actually, you know, the people who bring a lot to the field, uh, different fields, they also combine two things. Like they combine art and technology or a type of science with a cultural element. And they bring two things together that people wouldn't think of bringing together. Yeah, that, that interdisciplinary uh, background. Um, so now that we've kind of, you know, got to that point in your journey where you, you've found, um, yourself to become a technical writer, <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about what it, you know, what it means to be a documentation architect and a little about the DITA and XML work that you do? Yes. Um, I can tell you a little bit or a lot. How much time do we have? <laughs> we have lots, but let's do it in like in plain English or in, in late person terms. So yeah, say, basically yeah. what I do is I help people write content in a way um, that is uh, not taken too much into context so that they can reuse it in multiple types of publications. So when I say not too much into context, a good example is you write content and say how to do this, and then you explain how to do it instead of saying, oh, like we saw in the chapter before or like we'll see in the chapter after. Because uh, if you start referencing what came before and after and making things sequential, then you can't take a part of it and try and reuse it into another piece of mm -hmm. content. And I do that in um, helping people how to write for that type of thing. But I also do the technology that supports the fact that you could write small topics into separate files and then put them back together. So could you give an example of something you've worked on to give us like a concrete example of what that might look yeah. like? A good example, uh, one that I can tell because some of the clients, they don't want their stories up there. Sure. <laughs> but uh, I, I work for a cell phone company, so they build um, cellular phones, the physical part of it. Um, and uh, they're, they're one of my clients. And basically, if you take one phone, you know, you can call with all the phones. You can set up your hotspot Wi-Fi on all of them. You can change the alarm. Like most of the features are the same, but a few of the features are different. Like some of those phones have dual SIM cards. Some of those phones have two cameras. Uh, in some countries you have 4G, in other countries you don't. 
so there's there's small difference. Like in uh, China, they don't have the Google apps on their Android phones. Uh, but in other countries, they do. So there are small differences, but most of the phone is the same. So you could write one manual per phone, but then it would be a lot of phones, especially if you consider that most phone companies, they have at least one model per year, sometimes two or three or four. Uh, it's a lot of writing and it's a lot of uh, content to maintain. Now, if you say on top of that, that every phone is probably available to users in three or four version of Android. So it means like the buttons, they change. And then depending on the apps that you install on the phone, it's different. And then depending on the vendor, some of the vendors, they want the screen captures to have their logo beside um, the little thing that shows the network. So you have all these differences. Can you imagine writing all of these manuals, how many tech writers it would take? But that team did do it with a single tech writer that's in the U.S. That, so that's on the law work. So, yeah, no, I can see what you're saying. Yes. And imagine then that this company, just like most mobile phone, they translate to 48 languages. Right. So, so it's really modular kind of work. Once, yeah. Everything you write once, you only translate once for each of these languages. And then when you make a change, we can identify identify in which file you made the change and we only send those files to translation even better we only send the segments the new paragraphs or the new sentences so we don't even send the whole file but we send parts of those files for translation so it goes way faster can you imagine if you had to send the whole thing back and forth all the time and just recheck quality mm -hmm. to make sure nobody added a new mistake or a typo somewhere and that person who does the writing in the U.S., she also handles um, all the life cycle for the translations in those 48 languages. I can. You're making me really think of like papers and projects we do in higher ed and how tedious we do our work. We should just chunk it like you do and break it up. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of how we think about making content for online courses. Cause mm -hmm. you know, when you were talking about like not referencing like yes. in the last chapter, because we, we do that with our, for example, our videos to say, you know, don't say like last week we talked about or in module two, we talked about. Um, but thinking about it, even from that perspective of, you know, where you're almost micro chunking it, like you said, so that if you just have to make, you know, like if a, a faculty member wanted to update uh, um, the year or something small, you know, the smaller those chunks are, like you're saying, the easier it is to update it. Yes. And sometimes you would give, like I did, I give training as well. And sometimes you give training for like half a day to uh, management. So you just go the on the overview of everything. And then you give a training to writers, which is um, a little bit of practice and then you give training to developers, which has a lot of technical acronyms that you kind of try to hide for the other audiences. So you also have things where you're going to take the same content, but show it differently for every audience and show it in a way that takes different amount of time. So you're either going to go just with the short definitions or go into um, deeper examples. So even for that, um, it's interesting. That reminds me of like marketing and communications as well, the way you'd have different focuses or audiences based on who you're going to trying to get messages to. So that's fascinating. So yes, your degrees make so much sense now. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, oh, that's awesome. It just um, took a lot of time to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's like wine. It ages with time, right? Oh, right. Well, we, we all age with time, but it ages <laughs> well. well. <laughs> um, so the other, when we met, you, you shared the story of how you ended up relocating from Canada to where you are now in Paris and also, you know, how you begin to think of yourself as a digital nomad. And so I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about that geographical relocation and your experiences as a digital nomad. Yeah, well, I started before there was a term called digital nomad. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was just a Canadian stuck in Montreal thinking winters are long. And um, I was working from home and I realized at some point that I had no local client. And I'm like, I work from a distance for all my clients. Why am I staying in this weather? <laughs> so I just packed my stuff and left for a month. And uh, at first I was leaving just like, the first time I left for three weeks, I went to Panama. And, and after two days there, I was like, oh no, I only have three more weeks. Oh no, I ho only have two more weeks. Oh no, what's going on? I have to go back home next week. I don't wanna go back. And so the year after I decided to leave for six weeks and then I was like, yeah, that's not long enough. And then I left for six months. I went to Mexico and I did that for three winters. And then I'm like, I don't even want to go back home, you know, <laughs> like I wish I could be in Canada for the two weeks of summer. <laughs> okay. I'm exaggerating, but, um, but I wish I could go there when the weather was good, but I, I'm really not a winter person. Like I liked it when I was a kid and I would go skiing all the weekends and everything, but in the slush as an adult, when you have to get the car out of the snow, it's not as much fun. And, um, yeah, so, and then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to travel. And so this year I got a visa to stay in, in France and, uh, it's going to end in August. So now I have to find where I'm going after. Um, but I'm, I'm working with most clients, uh, from a distance and I had a lot of clients in Europe, um, in the last two years. So I thought it would be nice to be around here and at least go and meet them. Cause seriously, I, for most of my clients, I can work with them between one and three years or four before I even meet someone from the team in person. So I think this virtual work is growing and I want to know, how are you going to decide your next location? Well, right now I'm, it's a, there's a lot of thinking <laughs> going on because um, there's this area in Europe that they call Schengen. And um, now I had a visa so I could stay in the whole Europe, but Schengen is really large and now I, I can only, now that I won't have that work visa anymore, I can only be here three months out of every six. So it, it means I can't go to Greece, I can't go to Italy, I can't go to Spain, I can't go. And then I have a client to meet in September, so I'm getting a work visa just for that. And then I have conferences in November. So it means in between I have to be gone. So, <laughs> so that's, I, you kind of decide a lot based on the law. Mm -hmm. And then you decide, like when I was going to Mexico, I really liked that destination because when you get in, you can stay there for six months. And it's like a lot of digital nomads, when they start, they travel too much and then they figure, they go, oh, well, I can't make a living like that. No, if you change space, place every three weeks, you will not be able to make a living because you get somewhere. By the time you figure out where the grocery store is, 
you wanted to visit one or two things and then oops you adapted to time zone and you have to switch and you're doing the logistics of finding a new flight finding a new country finding and and then what are you going to visit when you get there so i i usually travel for i try to travel for three to six months at the time uh, but I stay at least a month everywhere unless I only go for a conference or to meet a client. Where in Mexico were you? Uh, mostly in Quintana Roo. So Merida, Merida is Yucatan, but it's mm-hmm. really close. Um, I did uh, Playa del Carmen, Cancun, Tulum. So all, all these nice Caribbean warm weather kind of areas (laughs) (laughs) there's a theme here i like the sun (laughs) yes so i think to many if not most of our listeners that lifestyle is sounding pretty appealing are there there any uh are there any downsides or you know you mentioned a few tips and things that people should think about but are there any other um you know if somebody was interested maybe you know pursuing this type of lifestyle, any advice that you would give? Um, well, I think, you know, I because now that there's this term digital nomad that I discovered at one point where somebody said, you must be a digital nomad. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I read about it and it, it just came after I was doing it. So it's uh, it didn't exist when I started traveling. Um, but um, basically, everybody seems to do it a bit differently. And um, a lot of it depends also if you're a woman or if you're a man, like women will not go to the same places because of security concerns Um, or things like if you're a woman, you're going to make sure that your plane lands in the middle of the day and not necessarily too late at night. So it's um, there's that Uh, people who are from Europe, they have way more options because they have all of Europe that's open to them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so, which which is not the case for me. Um, and then they have other countries that are also open because they colonize so many places. Um, there's also, uh, like, one of the issues I've had at some point is I went back to Canada and they said, well, we can't give you your driver's license. You haven't been here for six months. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, no, I read about that. I was here for six months. And they said, but you don't have a permanent address. And I'm like, I still have been here for six months. I have a car. I have insurance. Both my companies are here. If you don't give me my driver's license, who else is going to give it to me? <laughs> yeah. So so they said, okay, so give us all the paperwork. And I sent them all my taxes, all my uh, addresses. Because when I, I moved to BC, I lived in Eastern Canada, but really I moved to BC. And, um, and then I, I thought, okay, I have to spend six months there. So I bought a car and I traveled around. So I did the digital nomading in my own area. <laughs> and I decided to go visit the mountains. And, every, and I went on a small island called Salt Spring Island. And I spent a month there. So even in, at home, I was traveling. And, and they said, yes, but now we need a real permanent address. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll give you an address. But you can see I was here for six months. So you, you become a real expert at knowing the laws of your own country. And it's going to be different for an American. It's going to be different. Like some people, if you're from India, nobody will take your passport. Yeah, I was just going to say, you have an affordance of a certain passport when you travel um, as a Canadian. I, I know this. Um, because 
I am one. And I, I think there are some restrictions to countries too, right? So if you're a single woman going to certain areas, um, so I think of colleagues of mine who've gone over to um, Dubai and Oman, there are restrictions on visas, um, what you can, where you can rent property or not if yes. you're a single female. So like I think of other things that um, may come into the way, but residency in a country is important for what you said, a driver's license, voting, things like that. So you do become a bit more, I guess, conscientious of when you're in and out of countries and tracking that. Yes. And I learned even because France would have taken me for longer. And then my accountant said, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And I said, why? They're going to take me. I just have to register and uh, I'll pay some taxes there because I, I'm going to be using their facilities. Uh, and they said, no, if you switch and you're a resident and you sell your company from you, the Canadian to you, the French, mm-hmm. and you give half that company to the government of Canada, like right now. And I'm like, but I've had this company for 11 years. I saved all my money for my retirement in there. And he said, yeah, that's why you can't accept residency in France. And I'm like, but the market is really cool over there. I want to be there. And he's like, no. So, so then I'm, I'm like, okay, then. So I'm going to travel some more. <laughs> Try to be out of Schengen half the time. But uh, yeah, it's. It's very complicated and the laws have not been built around us. Like people usually when they would go and work in another country, they would go and take a job in another country or they would open a business there. They would not necessarily keep a business in one country and just travel all over. It was not possible. And the laws are not ready for that at this point. Yeah, and you bring up two points. Like, you do want to have professional advice on accounting, accountancy, um, law potentially as well, especially if you're going to do some of this work. And I've looked at this. It's been tempting because I teach online myself and what it means to live in another country if you're a resident somewhere, a permanent resident somewhere else, and it's going to be working in a third country. So I think it's really important that you do investigate because you're right, the legal system and laws between these borders and boundaries, although they're able to travel to, they're not always um, welcoming for everyone. Or they're too welcoming. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) You come here, you pay taxes here, and then your own country will go, well, if you don't pay taxes here, then... (laughs) Exactly. So, yes, it's... um, it's uh, And the thing is, you know, even when you have good lawyers, like my accountant, they were laughing at me. They said, France, we'll finish this call because I had these weird questions about the residency and all. And they said, we're waiting for you. We're going to book you a, a meeting in July just because we know you'll have another weird question that we won't know how to answer. So... They, they think it's funny, but of course they're making money as they talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you could write you could write like a how-to book on all that you've learned. <laughs> but you think that, but and you go online and some people have done that, but it's it's a case by case kind of thing. Yeah, and something that um, most Americans will know that are expats elsewhere, you always pay back to Uncle Sam as long as you hold your passport to this country. So uh, you don't have that choice to opt in or opt out of taxes in other countries if you work there. Yes. So you, you talked a little bit about you know some of the things a woman might think about traveling. Are there other challenges that you've faced just as a female and the kind of technical business I, I, yes, but no, you know, I really, really realized this year um, because you you live 
your life, right? And you don't know the context of other people. So you just assume, well, it's business and it's hard. And um, you got to open your own way and you have to do your own thing and you have to make sure people know what you're doing and you go to conferences and you meet lots of people. And then this year, when I came to France, um, there's this uh, lady who's already here and she's, she's already opened the market. Like she, she's known into what she does. She helps people write uh, simplified uh, content. So simplified in the sense that... Um, She also organizes it in modular content and she helps people write shorter sentences that go straight to the point that are active and not passive and all the simplified, the equivalent of simplified English, but in French. And when I came to France, she opened the doors for me. So she said, oh, France is here. You should talk to her. And then she presented me to so many people. And I found that I was doing training with some businesses. I started, I started coaching some more businesses and I thought, oh, this is how it is when people open the road for you. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of guys I know who had the road open for them like that, but there's very few women because there's very few women that came before us that have this kind of contacts. And um, um, so I, I didn't know I had a challenge <laughs> <laughs> until I didn't have it. And I was like, oh, so it can be that easy. So anyway, I, I haven't seen Marie-Louise in so long. Her name is Marie-Louise Flack. And, um, and I, I, at some point, I'm like, I have to buy her a really good meal. Now I'm thinking I have to bring her on a cruise for a whole week or something. Because <laughs> uh, seriously, she, she completely opened the way um, to France and uh, Luxembourg and Belgium to me. Um, and that was awesome. That's amazing. You, I don't hear those stories in the U.S., so I think that's just brilliant to hear that Another entrepreneur says, listen, we need you to be part of this community of professionals and these, this experience. I think that's brilliant. Yes, <laughs> it is. And I think it shows that um, I think as more women are in technology and have good careers and break those, uh, they call it the glass ceilings. Um, I think it's going to be easier to bring some more women in because they're going to have like they're not going to have to fight their way, which I didn't know I was fighting that much until I didn't have to. But <laughs> I think we don't realize when it's every day, just like sometimes men don't realize. Uh, I remember talking to a friend once and I said, well, I don't know if I'm going to go there. It's not a very safe place. Uh, and he said, well, just don't carry good like jewelry with you or stuff that have a lot of value. And I said, but I am the value. I am the diamond. Like if I go on the street in a place where men attack women, I can't take off my costume, you know? <laughs> right. so, and he looked at me like, ah, yeah. Like it, it never crossed his mind. So I, it's hard sometimes, I think, when we're in our own context to understand the context of others. Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe the... The best way that you could pay her back is by doing the same for some other young woman that comes along. I'm still going to get her to a good restaurant. <laughs> at least. <laughs> We just have to be in the same country at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think thanking and gratitude for those that support us and kind of bring us into the fold or mentor us is critical. And I think you said it right. Like she's reached back and said, come with me along this path because I've already 
broken through this area and this barrier. And I, I think that's really important that we all kind of do that in our fields and what we do in our work. So um, thanks for sharing that. And moving on a little bit, maybe to wine. Yeah, um, this you, meal, you're going to have some food with uh, drinks with it, right? Yeah. So. Um, you mentioned that uh, you went to a vineyard yesterday and that you met the soup lady. Well, I didn't meet the soup lady. I don't think she's alive anymore. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I, I was told the story uh, of the soup lady. So apparently, and I after that, I was trying to look on the internet for her name to get you more information because when I was uh, I was doing this tour. And they told us the story and I was like, well, I don't know her name. I don't know exactly at what, in what year it happened. So I was going to document um, everything and I couldn't find it. So I'm going to tell you the story as it was told to me. Um, and then uh, at the same time, I'm just going to add, I discovered that the region I'm in, um, it's it's Porto, but it's Duro, the area where they grow um, the grapes. And apparently it's one of the areas in the world where there's the most um, women owner of vineyards. Nice. Hmm. So if you, if you go and look online and you can go, there's an article I found. It's called um, The Grape Collective. And the article is Conversations with a Women Winemaker in Portugal. And, um, and they have the description of many women entrepreneurs and um, what they do and how they got there. So I thought that was really interesting. Very cool. Oh, that's we'll great. add that to the show notes. That's great. Yeah. So, so to the story of the soup lady. So apparently what happened is um, in uh, somewhere in the last two centuries, <laughs> there was a disease that affected, I think it's a fungus. It attacked uh, the roots of the vines. And uh, so the people in Portugal, they started selling um, their farms. And they sold it to the British. So the British would buy those farms. And this lady who was a nationalist said, no, stop uh, selling your, your farms and your land. Um, if you keep it, I will give you soup so you can feed your family. So she started feeding soup um, to all the winemakers around. And she had her own wine um, like she was one a woman entrepreneur who made wine and stuff and uh, until they found a way to fight the disease and so people didn't sell all their um, land to the British so I thought that was interesting do you know how long she was doing that for no I don't that's why I was trying to find more information because we had the soup so they told us the story when they served the soup to explain where there's this recipe was coming from and uh, but yeah, I couldn't find it. But it was a disease that attacked the roots of the the, the like it's everywhere around the world. Mm -hmm. And it was a disease that came from the U.S. And the solution is to actually they take the roots from the U.S. because the because the disease comes from there. Um, the solution also came from there because the roots in the U.S. were resistant to that disease. That's why it didn't kill their their whole wine industry and so they take the roots and then they put um, they grow their own types of grapes from the roots into the insert them into the roots of the american type of grapes and apparently it's used everywhere on the world the world now as a way to fight this disease but still have their own types of grapes 
Interesting. All right. I'm going to have to do some research on my own and look for that story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm giving, giving you homework. I'm yeah. only giving you part of the story. So I now you have to that. look it. And uh, the area is called Duro. So if you, that, that wine lady, she's from that area. It's spelled D-O-U-R-O. Perfect. Okay. And that's I'm where all... That's where all the grapes for the Porto wines uh, are from. Because it's called Porto, but it's only aged in Porto. It's not grown in Porto. It's grown in the area that's called Douro. Hmm. So what kind of wine did you drink then on your, on your tour in Porto? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, the best wine I had, um, they couldn't give me a kind. <laughs> <laughs> old way so she said we take all the different types of grapes so you could have from 10 to 50 different types of grapes and they just put it all together and then they make the bottle and I was like wow this wine is awesome and then she goes uh, no the guy who's doing the tour he took the picture and he put it on um, an app that tells you how much the wine is and he said this bottle is worth 75 euros a bottle <laughs> and I'm like oh wow. that's why it's good <laughs> right, exactly <laughs> so um yeah, so, and I had, um, when I came to my Airbnb apartment here, um, they gave me a bottle of Porto wine as well, red Porto wine. And then I got um, a Favaius white wine that I got from the tour. So I, I got just so many kind, but the type of wines they have here that's very popular is the Muscadel. Muscadel, I don't know how to pronounce it, like they pronounce it in Portuguese when we do the tour, but it's Muscadel, something like that. And the Porto wine, of course. I know it in French. I'm in Porto. I'm in Porto, so I'm going to have some Porto wine. <laughs> there you go. Nice. Um, and Anna, uh, when you're back home, do you have a favorite wine that you like to drink? Um, uh, whether I'm home or not. <laughs> Yeah, one of the wines that I, I I can't remember the name, it's Castle something, but it, um, uh, Castle, Castle, it's an Algeria, a wine from Algeria, which is kind of weird because the Muslim can't really drink wine or they're not supposed to. And, uh, but they export this wine and it's, um, it has a very earthy taste and it's very bold. And when I'm in Canada, it's one of the cheapest wine you can find, actually. Hmm. And, and it's always at the bottom because Alger Algeria is not a known area for wine. So somebody told me once, try this wine. It's really good. And I, I always had it and I recognized the bottle, but I wouldn't be able to give you the name. Now I'm going to look it up. Like, so I'm, this is what I'm doing. So, quiet. so no, that's good. <laughs> Yes, but that's what I, I used to drink at home. And it was like, everybody's like, what's that wine? <laughs> it's your I'm secret like, you know, stash. Yeah, it's something I discovered once. And uh, it fit my student budget and I could still drink it. <laughs> and the taste was really good. So, <laughs> But I like, I like uh, wines that are bolder. And I like when they're aged into... Um, a woody kind of like barrels like oak mm -hmm. like very strong mm -hmm. woody taste mm -hmm. and if I'm not drinking wine I like to drink the single malt kind of whiskey mm -hmm. you know so um so I've always been attracted those to those woody tastes like I'm I'm not a chardonnay type of girl <laughs> <laughs> I like it 
No, that's good. Now I'm gonna to have to look for this wine. So you've given us a couple challenges on this podcast. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, that. I know. See, I'm I'm the worst. It's like, oh, we're gonna interview this girl, she's gonna give us half the information and make it make us look for it. <laughs> you know, I guess okay. I'm happy to do this. Kind of be a chitta thing where we try to optimize the search engine instead of optimizing the documentation. <laughs> <laughs> optimize the learning. I'm happy with that. Uh-huh. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about what's coming up or what's percolating for projects or things in the future for you that before we wrap up this uh, chat? There's just so many projects. Like seriously, I had. This year was the I'm it was my 11th year in business. I'm going to start the 12th in a month. And um it was the busiest year ever. On top of the paperwork to be able to stay in France for a full year, I had surgery and then I had like so much work. So for the first time um ever I hired a full-time uh, programmer to work with me. So I, she just started a few weeks ago. And so that's really a big project for me. And I've been working every time I had free time, I was working on a software tool um, that creates uh, slideshows out of data content because the con- like the data standard is mostly used to create books and um, to create web pages, but it's uh, nobody uses it to create uh, presentations slides so uh, I started doing that but because I had no more free time I I was like okay if I leave it on the side it's never gonna happen (laughs) so now that I hired someone she's working full-time on that tool so at some point in time (laughs) we should be able to create slides from our data content well I am able to but I'm not able to share um, that technology at this point because it's it's not solid enough to be a public thing so so I use it for myself, but it's. I'm hoping it's going to see the light of day into a more public format at some point. That's great. I'd be interested in that. Um, and it sounds like you've, you've said it, like you've realized you need support and you're growing. So that's a good thing. And uh, good for you for one, taking someone else on and two, realizing vacations are important as well. And time away is important. Yes, yes I really needed that vacation. <laughs> <laughs> You can't you can't understand how much I needed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And do you have any um upcoming conferences or anything that you want to tell us about? Um well for the first time I'm gonna go to the Techcom uh TC Well conference in Germany this year. It's in Stuttgart. Um so it's gonna be um I'm not sure of the dates. I think it's the week of November thirteenth or something really around that. So that should be interesting, but I'm trying not to go to too many conferences this year because I've done too many last year and it was really hard on my schedule. Mm-hmm. So yes, like Laura and I have both experienced that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm in retreat from conferencing, so I, I can empathize with that. Travel for fun, not a conference. That's my advice. But you know, the thing is, conferences are so interesting because you, you, that's where you see, like I work on my own, right? I, 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 until I had hired this person, um, I was always alone and she's a digital nomad, the person I hired. So I, she's here for training right now, but after that, we're both going to work separately. And, um, so it's it's really interesting to do, go to conferences and to have other people say words like data, XML, XSLT, 
Because otherwise, you just say it to yourself and nobody ever understands what you're talking about. Do you have any local kind of like meetup groups in, in France, in Paris, where you are? Like, do you have any kind of community of entrepreneurs that you meet up with there? We had this this discussion with another person here, but it we would need a whole con- like a whole new hour to talk about that. <laughs> but there's a very like it was more we were talking about content strategies meetups, and there was this whole discussion about how um, the culture of work in France is very different. Um, like in the U.S. or in Canada, you kind of own your career and you say I want to go there, and you go to a conference or you go to a meetup to further your own education so you, you could get a better job after. Mm-hmm. But here we're in an environment where people actually have safe jobs or safer jobs. And it's more like my boss will pay for me to learn this if they want me to learn it. And so they don't tend to go that much or they go to meet up and they're like, what do you give me? But they don't come and say, what can I give or how do we share or how do we grow as a community? Like the whole feeling of it is very, very different. Mm -hmm. So um, there are some people who are like, "Okay, let's do something. But the approach is very, very different. And I don't know so far that meetups or groups like that are going to be as interesting in this area. This, not Portugal, but France. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's interesting, too. That makes sense. I can see that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Are there any, if uh, somebody was interested in getting into the technical writing field or learning more about the work that you do, are there any resources or readings you might suggest? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the problem with readings is... <laughs> There's just so much. Well, I don't know. I would say um, learn about the technology or the science that you want to write about. Like if you want to do tech writing about biology, learn about biology. If you want to do tech writing about um, computers, learn about that. And then also um, learn a lot lot about um, simplified English. Um, Like just type... Uh, best technical writing practices on Google. Like you don't even have to read a book. Like here are the 10 things you can do to improve your writing for instructions and um, read about data, read about go to conferences. It's usually like the one thing I see that has been made a big change for me is going to conferences. Like I know this year I said, I'm not going to go to as many but that's how you meet people. That's how you grow. That's how you see uh, things coming. Because when people go to conferences, they present to you what's coming. They don't present mm-hmm. to you the work that they've done 10 years ago. They present to you the last work, that the last project that they worked on. And, uh, and it, it's really nourishing intellectually to see what other people are doing. And they, they bring you, like, sometimes it's the tiniest idea, but it will grow into something bigger, um, over time, like they plant the seed that will bring you the one thing that you need for that one project. So I'd say it's more about people than reading. All right, you convinced me, Franz. I will go to a conference or two. <laughs> I think you just inspired me there with your message. Okay, plant the seed. Got it. Sorry, you'll have to prepare something. <laughs> yes. All right. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up? Um, 
Well, I will cheer to you because I'm going to have a little bit of Porto wine before I go to bed because I have to finish the bottle before I take my flight back home, right? Right. So I will only (laughs) share with you the fact that I will be having a bit of Porto, so you might as well have something and drink um, to my health as I drink to yours. Salute. Sounds like a good idea. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much, friends. We really appreciate Appreciate you taking time and your schedule, especially your holiday schedule, to join us for the In Vino Fabulum and Wine Story podcast. And we'll be sure to put folks in touch with you um, and the best way to contact you, and you'll let us know. Um, so we'll leave messages after our research is done and we find all the good stories and resources Francis shared at 3wedu.wordpress.com. This podcast wants to continue the conversation with women and about wine. So we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what voices, stories, ideas, questions, and wine facts you hope we'll dig into next. Share on Twitter at 3WEDU or on the hashtag InVinoFab, and we'll always welcome love or messages by email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Stay tuned to the next episode. Please subscribe to the InVino podcast via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or stream directly from SoundCloud. Remember, in wine, there is a story. Envio Fabulum. Um, and enjoy the rest of your uh, portal. Yeah, I will. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Take care, Franz. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.